We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. All right. Hey, good morning, everyone. Um, Again, my name is Sam. I'm one of the pastors here. I see a lot of visitors today. So let me just say welcome. Um, I hope that you guys have felt welcome since you've since you've been here, there is a connect table out front that we would love to get some more information from you, give you a coffee mug, and just let you know how you might get plugged more into this church if, if that is something that you want. Our greatest desire for you is not that you would walk away from this church being deeply impressed by anything about us, but rather uh, to be deeply impressed by the person and work of Jesus. That's all we do here uh, every Sunday is we, we want for you to leave this place loving and treasuring and valuing Christ more than you did when you first walked in. So that is, a, that is our primary goal um, this morning and every other morning. I just have one announcement to the members this morning, and then I want to uh, announce our preacher. Um, the only announcement is this. Uh, please get on Planning Center and schedule your blockout dates. Um, we're actually about ready to uh, schedule our next round of volunteers. And so uh, it means that if you're not available anytime in the next few months, we need to know ahead of time. Your, your team leaders need to know ahead of time. So, so be sure to do that. All right, announcement over. I'm terrible at announcements. So we have now successfully moved on past announcements. Um, I want to introduce our preacher. Uh, this morning, Taylor Callen is going to preach for us. Um, if you don't know Taylor, he came here a couple years ago. Actually, you'll, you'll hear in the sermon, um, God providentially brought Taylor to us, and we're incredibly glad that he did. Uh, Taylor is, is part of our Emmaus Pastoral Residency Program here, and there was one year, there was one year that we had a partnership with, um, uh, with Midwestern Seminary where uh, we work with them. That It's kind of like a, a dual program where they're going through their classes, and they're also doing stuff here in, in the local church, and we decided to fold that into our Emmaus Pastoral Residency Program. That's the only time we've done it, and Taylor was the person who came during that time. So God prov- providentially brought Taylor to us, and he joined the, the, the residency and has done a phenomenal job through it. So the residency is, if, for those of you who don't know, it's a two-and-a-half-year training program for men that want to do pastoral ministry, who feel uh, an an aspiration to pastoral ministry. And we put them through the ringer. We have them read lots of books, write lots of papers. We get together uh, once a month in the evening, and we spend a lot of time together hashing out the papers and the topics. And uh, also, every spring, we have a preaching symposium where all of our residents get up and preach in front of a few pastors, and we give them as nerve-wracking as this is, we, we grade them right then and there, and we give them immediate feedback on their sermons. And every year, we like to take a few uh, residents and preach during the summer. It's our pastoral residency preaching series. And so um, the week before last, we had our first of, of the four residents' sermons. That was Corey Chaplin, um, right as he and his wife were, were leaving to Bristol, Rhode Island, and so um, this week we have Taylor. So I just have three words to describe Taylor for you throughout this residency. Number one is wise. 
Number two is convictional. This man is convictional. If you ask him what his opinion is on anything, he has a well-thought-out answer for it, which is a very, very good thing. And he's also humble. And those last two words don't go well together often. Uh, A lot of times the convictional people are also the people who lack humility. And I can gladly tell you that this is very much not the case with Taylor. He's an excellent example for our residents and um, just an excellent church member. I love this brother dearly. He's incredibly honest. Um, we've had a lot of really helpful conversations, and he is, uh, he's very self-aware, and he loves Jesus. And so uh, for those reasons, and also because this is a great sermon, I'm really excited to introduce Taylor um, to you. So would you guys uh, join me in welcoming Taylor? Let me pray for you, Taylor, and then you can, uh, you can jump in. Father, we are so grateful this morning for what this sermon represents. Um, Lord, the, the privilege that we have as a church to be a part of uh, men, qualified men who, who are pursuing pastoral ministry is a grace that we do not deserve. And so I pray that we are grateful for it. Um, and Lord, I thank you for the reality of, of faithful sermons that, uh, that, that, that as long as Taylor stands here and he proclaims your word faithfully, we are all bound to it. Um, that, that I, as his pastor, have the privilege of sitting underneath his teaching and being obedient to what is found there because it's your word, ultimately, that is authoritative. So we thank you for those deep mysterious, supernatural realities. And I pray that you would bless him now. Um, would you calm this brother's nerves? Give him, um, give him uh, the humility and the desire to just stand and be a, a, a mouthpiece for you. Um, so we know that we need this sermon this morning, and I pray that we would, uh, we would sit eagerly waiting for um, what you would have uh, to, to tell us through Taylor this morning. So fill him with your spirit and uh, build this church up through this sermon. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, Emmaus. Uh, Sam, you're going to make me cry. Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much for those uh, kind, kind words. Um, As Sam said, uh, my name is Taylor. It is such an honor to be with you. I want to thank the elders for giving me this opportunity um, I wanted to, to thank um, my fiance's parents for loving and supporting and coming out to hear me preach. Uh, love you guys. Um, I'm a teacher at Grandview Christian School, and I'm also engaged to Katie Rose, who is also a covenant member here, um, who is tirelessly working for the gospel through an organization called World Changers, and so that's where she's going to be for most of the summer. I ask that you guys also be in prayer for her. Uh, We're getting married in August. This morning as I was getting ready, I texted her um, a picture of my outfit to get her approval, but but because she's tirelessly working for the gospel, she responded two hours later, oh no, not that shirt. Um, So if she was not tirelessly working for the gospel, we would have prevented this, but I I pray that... um, you would, you would give me grace anyway. Um, we're going to be looking at the book of Philemon, which is the 
the shortest letter that Paul wrote right before the book of Hebrews. Uh, while you're turning there, I'm going to give you a little insight about my heart for preaching to you this morning and about how I came to Emmaus. I moved to Kansas City two years ago to go to Midwestern Seminary, and one of the reasons I chose Kansas City was because they had an internship program. You come here, you start your degree, and they hook you up with a church, and the church I was assigned to was Emmaus. I started serving, I joined the pastoral residency, and I became a member. But if I'm being completely honest with you, I did not like this church whenever I started going here. Uh, I, I, when I first visited, I didn't feel comfortable. I didn't like the vibe. It was too young, too hipster. Frankly, I didn't feel like I really belonged with this crowd. I felt really alone and like an outsider for a long time. And, and as I journeyed with this church, I discovered that I wasn't the only one. I discovered that there were people who didn't really have a choice to come to Emmaus either. There were some people who had spouses or families who loved this church, but they themselves were not crazy about it. There were even some people who joined Emmaus a long time ago, and as it changed, they felt like they no longer belonged. Um, over these two years that I have been here, I've come to love this church I've come to love the members of this church and, and value each one of the pastors here dearly. But let me tell you, the love that I developed for this church did not progress because I learned the cultural customs of this place. The love that I have for you, Emmaus, is because of the deep love you have for Jesus Christ and his gospel. As I've walked with this church and grown with this church, I realized I viewed community and belonging like the world views community. You have to have things in common. So let me tell you quite frankly, would I typically hang out with most of you? No. <laughs> Do I want to? Absolutely. Why? Because we have the same Savior. I know there's people in this body who are over the honeymoon stage of joining a new church. I know that there are those in this church who have never had a honeymoon stage. And for the rest of you, know that if you stay with this church long enough, there will come a day when the honeymoon stage will end. So, so what do we do about it? The American Western solution is that whether it's your job, home, church, or spouse, when you've lost interest, move on to the next one. So do you have problems with others in this church? Do you have criticisms and complaints against the pastors? I know I have. What's your motivation for attending church? Because in our culture, we are consumers. We go to the movies, we enjoy the entertainment, and then we leave. And on Sunday mornings, we treat the church the same way. So naturally, if we're offended, if people are unkind to us, if we don't like the music, if we've lost interest, we leave. I mean, why wouldn't we? So do you treat your church like that? If you don't listen to what Paul is saying in the book of Philemon, you're never going to be content with any church you're at. The discontentment will follow you. You're always going to find problems. You're always going to be frustrated. It's going to be a joyless Christian life that lacks biblical friendship and discipleship. But if you listen 
if you look carefully for what the book of Philemon has for us, then all of your relationships can be radically transformed by the gospel. You can love the people here with a love that is lasting. You can restore broken friendships and heal the open wounds in your spiritual life. You want that this morning? That's what Philemon has for us. Before we dive in, let me get into a little background of the book so we can understand it rightly. The Apostle Paul is writing to Philemon about his runaway slave named Onesimus. Let me tell you something about slavery in the ancient world. Because when we think of slavery, we think of American slavery, which is right inherently racist, just geared towards Africans. It was comprised of stealing people out of their homeland and selling them into a foreign land, which in the Old Testament would have gotten you stoned, right? There's a different paradigm here. Now, this is Roman slavery, not the kind of Jewish bond servants that we see in the Old Testament. That's another whole conversation. But let me say that it's, it's not much better, but it's different. So try to remove that from your mind when you think of the slavery that we see today. In the ancient world, if you owed someone a ton of money and couldn't pay it, then you became a slave until you could work it off. So Onesimus most likely owed Philemon a massive amount of money and couldn't repay it, so he became a slave. Fearing for, oh, also, it appears that Onesimus had committed some kind of crime against Philemon. And fearing for his life, Onesimus ran away and found Paul. He knew that Paul was an apostle, had spiritual authority over Philemon, and could protect him from his slave master. So this is the background. This is the situation we find ourselves in this morning. Onesimus had sinned greatly against Philemon, so he runs to Paul to mediate. My purpose this morning for this church, for the people here right now, is that I want the gospel to radically change your life and how you relate to others. My purpose this morning is that I want the gospel to radically change your life and how you relate to others. Because in the book of Philemon, we're going to see two products of the gospel Two products of the gospel. The first product of the gospel is the gospel will produce transformed children of God. We're going to find that in verses 8 through 14. The second product of the gospel is that the gospel will produce gracious, self-sacrificial love. We're going to see that in verses 15 through 22. So we're going to pray. We're going to dive into this text and see how it can improve our Christian lives together in the community here at Emmaus. You bow your heads with me. Oh, dear Heavenly Father, I am so unworthy. I am like a runaway slave who deserves nothing but death. But you and your grace have given me opportunity and invited me to preach. Let this sermon not be one that pleases man's ears, but one that glorifies your name and builds up the body. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. Help us to understand this through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. The first product of the gospel is that the gospel will produce transformed children of God. Let's look at verses 8 through 10. So read along with me. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. So the first sub-point I have underneath the main point is this. 
The gospel bears children of God. So think childbirth bearing children. The gospel bears children of God. So if you're taking notes, you're trying to follow my outline, Roman number one is that the gospel will, perf- uh, will produce transformed children of God. Subpoint A is that the gospel bears children of God. Paul has spiritual authority over Philemon, but Philemon has legal authority over his slave Onesimus. In the Roman world, you were property you didn't have any value. Your slave master could do whatever he wanted to you, and slaves were not viewed kindly. There was one Greek poet who said, you have as many enemies as you have slaves. There was another one who said um, that he was going to beat his cook for the bad meal, and another man complained, why would you beat him for that? And he says, if you don't beat your slave for making a bad meal, then what reason would you beat him for? If your slave ran away, you could have them beaten, hung, crucified, thrown to wild beasts in the Colosseum, or even hire torturers to ensure your slave suffered. This is just a side note. When we see in the New Testament calls to love their slaves, to be kind to their slaves, it's a radical departure from the way Romans viewed slavery. So just a side note, back to the text. If you look with me at verse 10, you'll see that Paul calls this runaway slave, my child. This is not some Lindsay Lohan moment where two twins were separated at birth and just happened to go to the same summer camp. Like We understand this is not Paul's physical descendant. Paul is calling Onesimus his child because when Onesimus ran away and sought Paul, Onesimus was converted and became Paul's spiritual son in the faith. That is significant. There, in the ancient world, Slaves were never listed to have fathers. Their entire identity was assumed in their master, but Paul calls him his son. This, Paul has preached the gospel of Jesus to Onesimus. After Onesimus has turned from his rebellion, Paul gives him an identity. Paul gives him a value and meaning and a name. And so you too, Christian, are called to give brothers and sisters in this church value and meaning. And you may say, what right do I have to give value and meaning to others? You have no right, but here's the thing. In the Gospel of John, it says, everyone that believes, God gives the right to become children of God. We're not all born children of God. It's something that's bestowed upon someone. It's the process of adoption. But for those who are Christian, you've been given a name and a place of honor, not because of anything you've done, but because God has freely bestowed it in his grace. God has set his love and his affection on you, and you have meaning, purpose, worth, value, dignity, because you have a Father in heaven who has made you flawless in Jesus. And realizing that this is true about every single Christian, Go throughout this church loving one another. Like some of you have terrible, awful fathers. Some of you don't have good families at all. And as a church, you are called men, be fathers to the fatherless. Women, be mothers to the motherless. We're called to fill the role that, that families on earth have left. There's a gap and we must be the family that unites because we have a father in heaven. We have value because of him, and that's our calling. Moving on to my second sub-point. Now, we know that the gospel bears children of God, but we also must realize that all men were naturally useless. So if you're taking notes, trying to follow me, sub-point A, 
the gospel bears children of God. So point B, all men are naturally useless. Look with me to verse 11. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now indeed he is useful to you and to me. Now that Onesimus is Paul's son in the faith, Paul is acting as a mediator between Philemon and Onesimus. He knows that Onesimus deserves death for his crimes. He knows what's at stake here. Onesimus' name in the Greek actually reflects something of the useful one. So look at verse 11, and you'll see Paul's doing a little bit of wordplay here. You could read it this way by saying that the useful one was formerly useless to you, but now indeed he is useful to both you and me. And Onesimus' sinful state is one we should all be able to relate because mankind is utterly useless without Christ. And, and just look at, for instance, Romans chapter 3, where it says, no one does good, no, not even one. No one seeks after God. And there are probably people in this crowd saying, well, I seek after God. I do good. Do you hear it? No one. There's emphasis. It goes on and on, verse after verse. No one seeks after God. And you may say, well, God knows my heart. I'm useful to him. I have a good heart. He understands me. Check Jeremiah 17, verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? You need a new heart, my friend. And you may say, look, I mess up. I know that. I'm not perfect, but my good deeds are more than my bad deeds. The problem is, the prophet Isaiah said, When we display our righteous deeds, they are nothing but filthy rags. You can't bribe God with filthy rags. He'll be offended. Because not only... Is it a terrible bribe? But he's a just judge, and he's not going to accept a bribe. He's holy, and that means he has to punish evil before him. And, and some of you may be saying, Taylor, I liked your intro. Your fiance seems nice, but you sound like a real jerk. You're one of those Pharisees. You think you got to be perfect to get to heaven. God wouldn't expect that for us. But wasn't it Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount saying, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect? See, most people think, that all you need to do to go to heaven is to go to church, be a good Christian. You have to be perfect. The standard is perfect, holy righteousness. But let's pretend, just for the sake of an exercise, that we can lower the bar. If all you had to do to get into heaven was to be a good church member, would you be good enough to get in? Let's check. Philippians 2.14 says, Do all things without complaining or arguing. Have you ever complained about your church? Have you ever argued with someone in your church? Have you ever talked about someone behind their back without confronting them privately about their sin? Hebrews says, let us not neglect meeting together as some has made it a habit, but let us encourage one another. How many times have you failed to encourage one another by selfishly skipping church? Like I have several times. I remember whenever I went to Catholic school, I'm from South Louisiana, Catholic school is, is everywhere, it's, and the public schools are terrible, and I sat in my religion class, and we went over the commandment that said, don't break the Sabbath, and she, the teacher was explaining things to me, and, and she made the comment uh, about how important it was and how you know, we need to go to church, and at the time, I would skip church all the time. We would pretend to be asleep so that my mother would not bother with forcing us to go to church. We hated it. And so I raised my hand and I said, you know, what, what happens if you miss church once? And she said, well, God's not going to send you to hell if you get a flat tire or something. Well, immediately, fear of God in me because I had broken that commandment. I was terrified 
because God commands us to not forsake the assembling. So, so, so let me say this. If we even lowered the bar from perfection to just being a good church member, we still all fall short. Emmaus, we need to understand salvation isn't just really hard. It is impossible. And, and you may be thinking, well, this guy in front of me, he doesn't think anyone's going to heaven. Let me tell you what I think. By man alone, salvation is totally impossible. You are incapable of saving yourself. But salvation is possible with God when we look to the cross of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus lived the perfect life that you couldn't. If he were a member of this church, never complain, never argue. If there was a problem with sin, he would always go to them privately. He'd be absolutely perfect whenever you could not. See, if I were to die right now and stand before God, I would go to heaven, and I am assured of that. How do I know? Not because I'm preaching right now, not because I teach at a Christian school, not because I've been to seminary, but because God views me with the righteousness that Jesus gave me. He lived the perfect life, died absorbing my wrath, and then for anyone who repents and believes, he gives them righteousness, takes away their sin, and that's how anyone is saved. But you cannot think that on your own that, that you can attain eternal life. Repent and believe the gospel. Moving on. Not only does the gospel bear children of God, not only are all men naturally useless, but also the gospel makes the useless useful. So subpoint A, the gospel bears children of God. Subpoint B, all men are naturally useless. And C, the gospel makes the useless useful. Look with me to verses 11 through 14. But now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. Verse 13. I would, be, I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be compulsion, but of your own accord. Jesus was very clear in John 3, 3, you must be born again. Sam preached wonderfully on that passage when we went through the book of John. I suggest you look it up. The Christian life is a life that's marked by radical life change. The old is gone, the new has come. Christian, you are a new creation in Christ. You're no longer a slave to sin, but a slave to God. Onesimus becomes useful to Paul by helping him in prison. He immediately jumps into Christian service. In the ancient world, a prisoner was not given any food or clothing. If you were in jail, you had to rely entirely on people on the outside bringing you these necessities. Because of this in the Roman world, it was a terror to be led into prison, and many people starved and died in such institutions. So after Onesimus hears the story of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, after Onesimus has placed his trust in the blood of Jesus, Onesimus serves Paul in prison. Jesus said that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Our lives will either produce works of the Spirit, revealing we have been changed by the gospel, or our lives will produce works of the flesh, revealing that we have not been changed by the gospel. Onesimus has been radically transformed into a new creature. And we even see that he's turned from his sinful ways, and he's willing to return to his master who could execute him. He has true sorrow, and he's ready to face the consequences. So, so just to also clarify, 
I made a statement that it's the perfect righteousness of Jesus, not any of your works, not any of your deeds, not your church attendance, but Jesus who gives us his perfect righteousness. And we receive that when we repent and trust in that Savior. But now I'm saying that the Christian life will bear good works. Now, don't be confused, friends. These good works do not make you a Christian, but rather the transformation of your being from one nature to another will produce good fruits. Imagine, if you will, someone who goes up uh, to a tree, it's got pine cones all over it, they have a stapler and a bunch of cut up apples, and they're just stapling the apples on one after another after another, and they look at you after they're done, they say, look, it's an apple tree. You'd be like, you're insane, first off, what is wrong with you? But we know <coughs> that, that the fruit attached to the tree would not make the tree an apple tree. It's the essence of the tree that will produce the fruit. And the fruit in our lives is evidence of our essence, evidence that we've been changed. You have to be radically changed. The only way to train, change that, that tree from a pine cone tree to an apple tree is some kind of miracle. And the same thing for anyone who is natural and not a Christian. A miracle must take place a radical transformation. So as a midway recap, the gospel will produce transformed children of God because the gospel bears children of God. All men are naturally useless and the gospel makes the useless useful. Moving on to the second product of the gospel. The gospel will produce gracious, self-sacrificial love. This next section is gonna be from 15 to 22, but first we're gonna focus on 15 and 16. We're going to emphasize the point that the gospel leads us to forgive. So if you're taking notes and you're trying to follow my outline, Roman numeral two is that the gospel will produce gracious, self-sacrificial love. Subpoint A is that the gospel leads us to forgive. Look with me to verses 15 and 16. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? The gospel leads us to forgive. In this truth, Paul is calling for something radical. Let's think about all the crimes that Onesimus has committed against his master. He's asking him to forgive these crimes. So, so first off, Onesimus has acquired a debt that was so great to get him into slavery. He's committed some kind of crime that was worth him risking his life and running away, and then running away in general would have warranted death. Paul is calling for him to forgive this sinner, this wretched slave who is awful to him. Now, Christian, listen to me. No one has ever sinned against you more than you have sinned sinned against Almighty God. You, you may be sitting here thinking, you have no idea the sins committed against me. You have no idea of my family situation, of my marriage, of, and you're right. I have no idea. The pastors probably have a better outlook. But let me say this. We know for a fact that there's no one, you have, uh, no, there's no one who has sinned against you more than you've sinned against Almighty God, and he has forgiven you. God has forgiven us, and when a brother or sister comes to you in repentance, you only have one response, loving forgiveness. I'll get more to this at the end. The gospel doesn't just lead us to forgive. The gospel also leads us to sacrifice for others. So subpoint A, the gospel leads us to forgive. Subpoint B, the gospel leads us to sacrifice for others. Verses 17 through 22, look with me if you will. 
If you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even yourself. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Paul writes that he is willing to assume all the debt Onesimus has occurred to his account, which at its worst is execution, death, and torture. So notice that in verse 19, there's something that we wouldn't pick up because we don't use this terminology, but in verse 19, Paul says, I write this with my own hand. In the ancient world, writing a letter in your own hand was as good as signing on the dotted line. It could be used as a legal document. In theory, Philemon could take Paul to court and have him enslaved or executed with this document. Why on earth would Paul do this? Putting his life on the line for the slave. Well, first off, if you look at verse 22, he says, prepare a room for me. His expectation is that Philemon, who is someone who's been radically transformed by the gospel, will forgive. But then why make the the offer at all? Why would Paul be willing to sacrifice his life for Onesimus? Good question. I'm glad you asked. Paul understands that Jesus first died as a substitute for Paul and that Jesus saw us in our slavery, humbled himself to the point of a slave. Jesus became a substitute and sacrificed his life for sinners like you and I. Emmaus, he died for you, a filthy sinner. And if our Savior is willing to die for his church, how much less are we called to? Paul understands this. He understands this so well that he's willing to sacrifice his life for even a wretched slave. Let's get a snapshot of what we've done so far so that what we're about to do makes sense. My purpose for you this morning was that the gospel should change your life and change the way you relate to others. This morning, we saw two products of the gospel. First, the gospel will produce transformed children of God. And secondly, the gospel will produce gracious, self-sacrificial love. So where are you this morning? Are you frustrated? Have you been offended? Do you feel like you're not united with this church? What is your motivation to be here? Are you a consumer who just shows up, gets their fill, and leaves? Are you guilty of holding grudges? Are you guilty of being critical over things that don't matter? And the question under all of this Have you forgotten the gospel? Because that's the source of all of this disunity within our church. I'm not a pastor. I'm not ordained. I hope to be one day. But but let me give you some pastoral charges, Emmaus, because I love you and I want your betterment. And even pastors, as you sit out, I hope that I could pastor your souls and give you these charges. First off, Turn from your sin and turn to the cross of Jesus Christ. The Father saw us in our rebellion, and he loved us in spite of that. He sent Jesus to be born of a virgin and take on flesh. He lived the life that you could not. He died the death that you deserved. He was absolutely perfect, and because he was perfect, he was satisfying the wrath of God owed towards sinners on the cross. Romans 6, 23. 
the wages of sin is death. What you're earning every time you sin is death, and that's either paid for in eternity in hell, or it has been paid for by Jesus on the cross. He was a substitute for his people. He shed his blood. He died for sinners like you. He died for you, Emmaus. He was buried, and then he gloriously rose from the grave, defeating sin, death, and the devil. And if you trust in Jesus, apart from your good works, apart from your church attendance, apart from whether or not you do this or don't do that, think this, don't think that, if you trust in Jesus alone for your salvation, you can have assurance. You can have everlasting life. Jesus will give you his perfect righteousness. Only the perfect will inherit heaven. Take Jesus' righteousness. Look, I've talked a lot about disunity. I've talked a lot about forgiveness. And if you are here today and you've had problems in your marriage, you've had problems with your children, you've had problems in your church, but this has not been your concern and you have not repented and trusted in Jesus, you have a bigger problem, my friends. Almighty wrath of God resides against you. God is a just judge and he will judge accordingly. Run to the sun. There is forgiveness, grace, and love. Don't wait any longer. There was a, a preacher in England, I think around the 15th century. I don't remember his name. It's not important. But this, this guy basically preached, and there was a young man who was very convicted of his sin, and he came forward and he said, tell me how to be saved. And the preacher, having an appointment after, said, I'll tell you next week. And there was a fire in London, and the boy died. Um, and never knowing if the boy received eternal life. Just don't delay the Bible says, today is the day of salvation. Trust in Christ and live. Second pastoral charge, treat other Christians as fellow children of the king. Imagine you had an identical twin who is raised just like you in every way. The only difference is that you are a Christian and he or she is not. I can tell you that you have more in common with any Christian in this room or the world than you have with your twin. Apart from God, you are nothing, but in Christ, you're an adopted child of the highest king. You're intimately cared for. You're valued. You are prized, pardoned, and chosen before the world's foundation. You have dignity, value, and worth, not because you're amazing, because Christ is amazing. And Christ has given us those things in his grace. So you may ask, how do I treat other Christians like fellow children of the king? Good question. I'm glad you asked. You have to make time. Number one, I think fellowship Christian fellowship is a huge aspect of this. Now, what I don't mean is a bunch of people who go to the same church and they talk about their favorite episode, The Office. But what I don't mean is a bunch of people who go to Emmaus and they watch a Chiefs game. Like, these are fun things. I enjoy them. I like to do them. But that's not Christian fellowship. Watchman Nee is very helpful. He wrote, fellowship means, among other things, that we are ready to receive of Christ from others. Other believers minister Christ to me and I am ready to receive. Look, our community our fellowship time has to be primarily rooted in the gospel. If it's rooted in our cultural likes and dislikes, the movies we like, the books we don't like, the music we like, whatever it may be, this will become a cultural community and not a gospel community. There is a, a great friend that I've had for many years. His name is Ed. He is from Texarkana, Texas. He uh, has cerebral palsy. He has a thick country accent. He loves Dragon Ball Z. I hate Dragon Ball Z. He loves um, heavy metal. I hate heavy metal. I love horror movies. He hates them. In just about every category, like that, that a person could relate to another one. We have nothing in common. We've been best friends for six years. He's going to officiate my wedding in August. We lived together for two. 
Why do I love this guy? Because he is passionate about the gospel, because he loves Jesus. And to Emmaus, in this church, that has to be your foundation. When people come in here who are not like you, whether culturally, they don't like the same things, there's going to have awkward conversations, it has to be rooted in the gospel. Ethnically, you have people who are not from the same backgrounds, who don't look like you. Like, I, I, I work in a school that's majority black, and if you don't give kids a seating chart, I see the split, is that people group into groups that are like them. We need to be aware of that and try to overcome those barriers. The foundation cannot be our ethnicity or our culture. It has to be the gospel. Also, generationally, this is one that's harder to see but devastates a lot of churches, is that you have young churches, you have old churches, you have some churches that are so large, they split into every kind of five-year age group, and, and they... They spread everyone apart, not letting them intermingle. But in the Bible, it says old men exhort younger men. Older women exhort younger women. Like that's one of my fears for this church is we're so young. And anytime I see someone with gray hair, I'm like, praise God, we have wisdom coming in here. We need your discipleship. We need your leadership. Just be aware of that. And and there's not going to be a lot of things that you have in common. But the commonality must be the gospel. Number three, be willing to sacrifice for the people of this church. Paul wrote in Romans 9, verses 2 through 3, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Jesus for the sake of my people. He is saying that he would rather die and go to hell so that some of his people could go to heaven and inherit Christ. In that passage, he says it's an impossibility, but this is an intense love that we are called to have. Do I have this love for you? No, that's, that's an intense love I want to cultivate. There's some of you, yeah, absolutely. I would die for, I would suffer an entire eternity if it meant you could go to heaven. But there's some of you that, that I need to work on my relationships with you. If you understand the gospel that Jesus sacrificed his life for his church, then there's nothing that we should not be willing to sacrifice for his bride. Do you have this kind of love, Emmaus? Do you have this kind of sacrificial passion for your fellow covenant members? If we understand the gospel as a church, we should. If we understand the gospel as a people, then there should be no reason for sinful division. My last point. I'll say, last night I texted Sam and asked him for prayer, and I said, help me, because uh, help me, or pray for me, because I need to cut down the sermon. And he said, oh, you have a little more time than, than you previously thought. That's a dangerous thing to tell a preacher, my friends. But trust me, I only have one last pastoral charge. Rebuke and forgive for the sake of reconciliation. Some of you have been thinking, why did Paul and Onesimus, or why did Paul send Onesimus back to Philemon and risk Onesimus' life? Couldn't he have just asked Philemon to forgive him in a letter and then they go their separate ways? Those are good questions. And here's the answer. Paul sent Onesimus back to Philemon so that they could be reconciled. Reconciliation means to enter into right relationship with another person. Listen, when God forgives us, his purpose is to be reconciled to us. It's not so that we can go to heaven and then he can be indifferent to us. And the purpose of forgiveness is not to grit our teeth and to get over that we have been offended. The purpose of forgiveness is for you to fix the broken relationship. Now, of course, an aside, if you have a father who beats his children and his wife, There can be forgiveness and there should be separation. There should be safety. There are circumstances, if you have questions for, ask your pastors. But as the rule is, the purpose of forgiveness is to enter into right relationship. There's this weird Christian 
community culture thing where it's like I've forgiven them before they've even repented. That's fine. I've forgiven them in my heart, but there's no relationship. That's not what forgiveness looks like. Jesus wrote in Luke 17, 3 through 4, or he didn't write this, he said it. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, then forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive. Spurgeon is is helpful with this. He said, our love ought to follow the love of God at one point, namely in always seeking to produce reconciliation. It was to this end that God sent his son. Has anybody offended you? Seek reconciliation. Oh, but I am the offended party. So was God. And he went straight away and sought reconciliation. Brother, do the same. Oh, but I have been insulted. Just so. So was God. All the wrong was towards him, yet he sent. Oh, but the party is so unworthy. So are you. But God loved you and sent his son. Every week at Emmaus, we practice communion. This is to remember the broken body of Jesus in the bread and the spilt blood of Christ in the wine. This is not forgiveness of sins. This is a ceremony that we do to remember the gospel. All of these roots of disunity are are the, the primary core foundational truth is that we forget the gospel. Paul applies this perfectly in Philemon. So as you come and you take, remember the sacrifice Christ made for you. But if you're not a believer, if you have not been reconciled to God, instead of coming, sit in your seat and cry out to Jesus. Today, save me, forgive me. Trust alone in Christ and live. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this church. Thank you for the saints in here and our commonality in the gospel. We thank you for your son and that wretches like us can be given value and meaning and worth, not because of anything in us, but because of what you did on the cross. In Jesus' name, amen. Come and take a mess. Thank you for watching this Amaze KC podcast. More information about Amaze KC can be found available online at www.amazekc.com.